From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm your host, Amanda Icone. Do you remember where you were three years, one month, one week, and four days ago? Well, that was the day that then-President Donald Trump signed into law H.R. 1, which you might know better as the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. This bill was arguably the most significant piece of legislation passed during the 115th Congress, a time when Republicans controlled the White House and both chambers of Congress. The backers of this tax package made lots of rosy predictions at the time that it would kickstart unprecedented economic growth and allow you to file your taxes on a postcard. Now, just over three years later, with the Trump era officially over, did any of those predictions come true? That's what Bloomberg Tax's Lydia O'Neill wanted to find out. She just published a story looking at whether the tax law actually accomplished its stated goals. And for this podcast, she spoke to two people who think a lot about the impact of tax policy, but with different perspectives. Matthew Gardner is a senior fellow at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, a liberal-leaning tax policy think tank. And Erica York is an economist with the Tax Foundation, which tends to skew more conservative. Lydia asked them about the impact of the 2017 tax law and about some of the claims that seemed far-fetched even then. When I spoke to each of you recently for this story, you both kind of brought up the fact that a lot of these promises were just kind of ridiculous to start with, regardless of the law itself. And um, Matt, I remember you said the more prominent claims were often the least serious ones. I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. You know, I mean, the most obvious claim that was made about the TCGA initially was that it would pay itself. And pretty notably, that was not made by anybody really serious at the time, the sole exception being uh, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Kevin Hassett, who said that the corporate tax cuts would themselves and were already in fact paying for themselves. But in general, it was just sort of an off-the-cuff thing. And it's not surprising because, you know, really... No one, no serious economist, I think, has ever tried to document a case in which a tax cut of this size, size has paid for itself. But it was a sound clip, and in a presidency defined by sound bites, this was one of the good ones. You know, it's a it's a tax cut that'll pay for itself. So um, it's a shame that that dominated the conversation, uh, but it did, and it's a shame because there were and are lots of serious people seriously trying to evaluate the strengths and the shortcomings uh, of this legislation and ways in which it can be modified going forward. And then Erica, I think you said something similar about the this immediate $4,000 increase in wages claim that Kevin Hassett was making. Yeah. So the story that we heard from some of the writers of the tax law or some of the, the policymakers involved with the efforts were dramatically more positive than what we would hear from otherwise serious economists who who were analyzing the law. So we heard claims like an overnight spike in investment that would boost growth to, you know, 5% forever and that higher growth would lead to an almost immediate increase of in thousands of dollars of take-home pay for workers. Um, and of course, as as Matt alluded to, all of all of those positive overnight growth facts that they said would happen, um, we're going to make the law pay for itself. 
And it's pretty much a nope on all accounts um, of, of what those most ardent supporters said about the law. But again, I'd get back to the idea. It's not that the law was bad necessarily. Um, it was that the promises that they made about the law weren't sound and weren't serious. Could you talk a little bit about investment too and, and how I mean, we did see that that big spike in 2018 and then it kind of went down below expectations after that. But there's just more to the story than you know, the spike and drop you might see from the BEA data? Yeah, so the right measuring stick to see if the TCJ was effective isn't the wild claims that, or the wild promises that we heard some of the, the ardent supporters making about it. But instead, we need to try to find a counterfactual that we compare actual growth to. And of course, we don't have a perfect picture of what growth would have looked like in the absence of the tax law, but we can look at old Congressional Budget Office forecasts as a good substitute for a counterfactual. Um, CBO projected that the law would increase labor and capital income and have some macroeconomic feedback that would offset some of the cost. And if we compare actual investment data, which we get from the Bureau of Economic Analysis to CBO's old forecasts, both their forecast they made of investment before the TCJA and their forecast of investment made after the TCJA, we see actual investment beat the CBO's forecast for a time after the law took effect. And then, of course, um, other policy changes happened, like a trade war, and now we have the COVID downturn. And so we saw investment actually drop below what those CBO forecasts called for. So we, we shouldn't measure the, the law by the sometimes ridiculous promises we heard from politicians because we, we didn't see those materialize and we shouldn't expect those to materialize. But if we look at actual investment and compare it to those CBO forecasts, we do see that investment did pick up. And we should also keep in mind that, that the improved incentives from the lower corporate tax rate are still in effect now, even though we have all of these other um, kind of countervailing effects going through the economy. Right. Well, I mean, there are other areas, of course, that are a little more mixed, um, including the international side. Matt, I was wondering if you could talk about that, since I know you love to dive into corporate SEC filings. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how, yes, we saw offshore earnings repatriated, but then in terms of actually bringing business back or profit shifting, the story is a little bit more different or at least hard to measure. So, um, you know, there was a clearly recognized problem uh, in advance of the tax cuts getting enacted, which is that on paper, U.S. multinationals were shifting their profits offshore out of the U.S., it looked like what was happening was that companies were putting income from intangible assets, uh, copyrights and, and patents and things like that, in tax havens. And so the obvious thing to try to do was to get companies to repatriate their profits from these tax havens back into the U.S. Now, it was always more complicated than that. Uh, there was a case to be made that much of the cash that was allegedly offshore was, was in fact, in U.S. banks and that it was you know, entirely on paper that this cash is offshore. But the goal that everyone shared was that whatever we do with the tax system in the uh, 2017 tax cuts should have the effect of taking away these harmful incentives to shift property offshore. The mechanism, the dual mechanism for doing it in the, uh, in the tax bill was one, uh, sharply reducing the U.S. Uh, income tax rate from 35 to 21%, going from a 
sort of worldwide tax system where we were taxing, in theory, all profits worldwide at 35% to a territorial system in which we are mostly kind of taxing U.S. profits and imposing a lower tax rate on certain uh, offshore profits. Um, so what happened in the immediate wake of the tax cuts is that a number of companies did on paper repatriate uh, some foreign profits. What immediately happened within a year after that is that net reinvestment uh, appears to have gone back up again. So much as we saw in 2004, the last time we tried something like this, a tax holiday of sorts for offshore profits, uh, companies appeared to have done what they needed to do in order to kind of cash in and then resumed business as usual. Certainly very complex to write the international provisions. That's another area we're looking at is simplicity where, you know, for individuals it might be simpler, but then if you're a business. Erica, would you be able to talk about how it was simpler for individuals? The the biggest changes on the individual income tax side that led to a simpler filing process for individual taxpayers would be the newly expanded standard deduction which was essentially doubled from about $12,000 for a married couple filing jointly to $24,000 for a married couple filing jointly. Um, with that expansion in the standard deductions were also some limitations on itemized deductions that again tilted um, the calculation for, for many more taxpayers to take the standard deduction rather than itemizing their deductions. Another simplifying change was the reduction in the AMT, which meant um, millions fewer taxpayers would get caught up in this parallel tax system that, that runs um, with the, the regular tax system. But then moving in the kind of opposite direction of that, lawmakers created a deduction for pass-through businesses, the Section 199A deduction. It's fairly straightforward for pass-through businesses that have lower amounts of incomes, but as you um, go up the income scale, different guardrails apply, and those are quite complicated. Overall, though, um, the IRS estimated that the net effect of all of the changes to the individual income tax would reduce the average time it took to complete an individual tax return by 4 to 7%. So we did see overall, in, in the IRS's estimation, um, a reduction in, in the time it would take to file your taxes, which will save some money and in, in compliance costs. Um, but overall, I think it, it could have been a lot better, especially when we look at the the complicating factors of things like the pass-through deduction. And then there was the infamous postcard that wasn't. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we, we heard the promise, again, one of those kind of crazy political promises that you would be able to file your taxes on a postcard. And kind of what they did with that, they ended up you know, putting a few things that you need to file your taxes on one small form and then all of the other things you actually needed to still do to file your taxes were on these various schedules. And so I know for some people, I think that, that made it seem even more complicated because whereas you used to just have your form 1040 and maybe schedule A and a few other things that you had to go through to file, it's, it's now this new system. But the vast majority of taxpayers either use some sort of software to file their taxes that walks them through it, or they go to a tax preparer. So they're not actually you know, printing off the forms at home and filing them, so they weren't necessarily affected. But it was kind of silly to see that reshuffling of the forms to, to kind of attempt to get a postcard, um, which, which was not, you know, di didn't really work out. Going more big picture, um, you know, are there any other areas where you guys think the 
the law really achieved what lawmakers set out for it to do or really didn't achieve uh, what lawmakers wanted for it in in the years that we can measure these things? Well, just to, to piggyback on what Erica said a minute ago, I think, um, you know, I mean, the simplicity thing, is it's nothing to, to scoff at for sure, because, uh, you know, 20% of Americans who used to itemize aren't doing it anymore. That's making it easier for many of them. Although uh, some are probably still trying to calculate both ways. But the um, one other thing that I think is really helpful that came out of this is that uh, itemized deductions, and in particular the mortgage interest deduction, have always been kind of a, a third rail. There's been a fear of uh, discussing these things among lawmakers and directly limiting mortgage interest deduction. Uh, it was always sort of off the table. And, and in fact, you know, when Bush, when President Bush Jr. had a tax reform commission uh, 15 years ago, like he famously took that off the table. He said, no way we're talking about that. So even if the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act achieved this indirectly by ramping up, primarily by ramping up the standard deduction and making a simpler alternative rather than explicitly um, reducing the ability to take a mortgage interest deduction and itemized deductions generally, that was the practical effect is all this stuff is now on the table and we're incrementally closer to get into a point where we can ask about any itemized deduction is this dumb policy? Does it make sense to have uh, a home ownership strategy that is so geared towards upper income taxpayers? So to me, that's a real policy slash political advance is that, uh, you know, we opened up a can of worms and, uh, and, and, and we're in a good position to have broader conversations going forward right now. And of course, President Biden has ideas about this. Uh, about how to further restructure these formerly sacrosanct deductions. That's a real good thing. That I think I think one of the the signature achievements of of the 2017 tax act was reducing the federal corporate income tax rate. So it, it went down from the the statutory rate of 35 percent to 21 percent. Um, but we also have to take into consideration um, the state level corporate taxes. And so so prior to the TCJA, the the combined rate in the United States was 38.9%, and that placed us um, at the, the fourth highest in the world. And after the TCGA, which dropped it to 21%, our combined rate is now near the worldwide average. So our combined rate now is 25.8%. The worldwide average is 22.6%. So we hear a lot of critics say that the TCGA cut the corporate tax rate too far, but really the reduction was barely enough to make our overall rate competitive with the global average. And I think that context is important to, to remember the combined rate and to see how we compare to um, other nations. And we're by no means an outlier of having a, a very low statutory rate. We're really right in the middle of the pack. Well, based on all of this, um, would you both be able to talk about sort of your hopes and fears for the Biden administration as they begin to look at what parts they want to keep and what parts they want to totally redo. Yeah, so um, I guess starting out, um, we, we've heard the Biden administration say they they want to raise the corporate rate to 28%. Um, I don't think that would be a good idea, especially as we are heading into an economic recovery. I'm more hopeful in other areas, though. Um, for instance, the, the TCJA as a pay-for included a requirement to amortize research and development expenses, and that's going to start 
after the end of this year. So companies, rather than getting to expense their R&D costs, would have to amortize them over five years. Um, we've heard the Biden administration talk about their hopes for you know revitalizing R&D and manufacturing in the United States. And I think canceling R&D amortization could be part of that. I don't think it's part of the discussion yet, but I anticipate as we get closer to that expiration or, or that policy change um, happening, we, we might see discussions around that. Likewise, um, the TCJA included full expensing of business investments in machinery and equipment, which is scheduled to start phasing down after the end of 2022. Again, something that would not be ideal during um, a hopeful period of, of a robust economic recovery. And so it would it would be awesome if we could see a deal that that included permanent full expensing um, as a way to get the corporate tax base right and as part of a larger recovery package. I think the first thing I'd like to see is certainty and intentionality. Uh, by certainty, I mean you know doing something other than these sunset temporary tax breaks. Uh, try to put an infrastructure in place that individuals and businesses can count on to be there for longer than five years. You know, right now the entire, not all of it, but, but almost all of the individual income tax changes are going to reboot at the end of 2025. It's just an accounting gimmick. There's no good reason to do that. Um, and we know from the Bush tax battles 10, 15 years ago that, uh, you know, when you make these things temporary, when you when everything uh, turns into a pumpkin at midnight, there's this endless war over how long to extend these things and which to allow to sunset. And making tax changes permanent, making the law basically permanent, I think, helps with expectations, everyone's expectations. Um, second thing, intentionality. I think we need to get to a place where uh, when, we, when we change the law, Congress has a clear idea of what they're doing. One of the main strikes against TCGA, uh, the 2017 tax cuts, was that it was enacted so fast, legislative intent wasn't always even clear. And uh, so an already swamped IRS had to enforce these changes without really knowing exactly what they were doing. They're filling in blanks and often, I think, writing law simply because, uh, which is not what they're trying to do, simply because Congress hadn't made its intentions clear to begin with. So take a deep breath. Think clearly about what you're doing and, uh, and, and, and make your intentions clear. Those were the voices of Matthew Gardner and Erica York speaking with Bloomberg tax reporter Lydia O'Neill. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. And share your thoughts with us on Twitter. We use the handle at tax, that's at T-A-X. Talking Tax is produced by Amanda Icone and David Schultz. Special thanks today to Lydia O'Neill. Patrick Ambrosio is our editor. Thanks for listening to this week's edition. From Washington, I'm Amanda Icone. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater... That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks for listening.